Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ziegler, and I'm the pastor here. I'm so good to be back with you this morning. I really missed you guys last Sunday. Last Sunday, I was in Honduras with my wife, Jana, and Olivia Rocamora over here, and we were there visiting a ministry that we had the opportunity to partner with here on a regular basis that we support, and uh, it was a wonderful time. And I asked Olivia if she would come and just share a little bit about her experience and impressions from the trip. So Olivia, would you come? Got a mic for you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Can we go ahead and get that first photo? Great. Um, so I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about our experience in Honduras last week. Um, we financially support a ministry called the Lamb Institute. So this is our, their, um, their photo below. Um, and specifically, we are supporting an immersive missionary named Susie McCall. She's an Anglican priest that um, Father John was able to meet a few years ago. And just the presence of who she is and the God of justice, I think, that she really emphasized, really um, connected with Father John, and they, he began supporting her in their church in LA and continue that tradition here. So I think it's really important to occasionally pause and, and get to know who it is that we're supporting and just see the global good that God is doing, the new wine that he's constantly pouring. Um, so I want to take a few minutes few minutes to talk about this ministry. Um, I think when we talk about missions, we might have a series of emotional reactions. I think there are those of us that have had really incredible um, experiences on um, mostly medical or physical um, needs types of missions. There are those of us that have done more spiritual um, gospel pushing uh, missions and had positive or not positive experiences. And then there are those of us that might be asking big questions about um, is how much God, does God want us to go abroad and how much um, do we want to help empower the locals there? And I'm really proud to say that um, what Mother Susie is able to do there is a combination of all three of those things. It is so deeply holistic and culturally dignifying. So I think wherever you are on the spectrum of missions, um, I think you will just feel so proud of the work um, that God is doing through her. Um, okay, so go to the next slide. Okay, so the Lamb Institute has, is a series of different programs, um, the largest of which is uh, an orphanage, a, a children's home um, for, that's currently for 58 kids. Um, over the years, hundreds have passed through. Um, but Susie saw a huge need to take care of children. They're a very uh, marginalized group that get caught in um, a lot of corruption that's happening in Honduras. So um, this a place, which is called Casa Ogar, if you look in the top left corner, you'll see it's in a really rural area. It's in the mountains, about an hour outside of the capital of Tegucigalpa. That's pretty intentional. It's just a very safe space for kids who were born in a lot of danger. Um, on this campus, there's a gorgeous church. There are uh, cabins for the kids, there is a school, and there's a lot of comprehensive programming to meet the needs of both their physical bodies um, and their spiritual formation. Um, we got to participate in, uh, in a church service. You'll see on the bottom left, um, Father John getting to distribute um, the, the Eucharist. For me, I'm relatively new to the liturgy, and so this was a very powerful moment for me to experience it. Um, 
as a global church in a different country, knowing that a few hours earlier, you all were just participating in the same thing. So that was very moving for me. Um, in the bottom right corner is just a little taste of what we got to see of the joy of so many of these kids who came from awful abuse or malnourishment or just things that children should not be going through. Next, what's really amazing about uh, for me for the Lamb Institute is that this is not just a one-off program that when kids move through it, and let's say they don't get adopted, then the program ends. Um, when kids age out of the orphanage, um, they have created a program called Transition, which just means transition, in which they give students college scholarships if they want to study, um, and opportunities to work. And in exchange for volunteering, they provide them safe housing. And so a lot of these kids don't get adopted. We kind of learned that there, that that's, it is a, a blessing, um, but Susie already sees them as chosen. And so she really spends a lot of time having a team of Hondurans who pour into these kids that no matter what, um, God has changed the trajectory of their lives. It's okay if, if no one comes for them. Um, and so this is a group up top of, of, that we got to see. These are transition kids um, who are in college. Their futures are very bright. Um, despite some challenges in employment and whatnot, a lot of these kids are studying incredible things, and we know God's going to work through them. One kid we specifically got to know a little bit more um, is at the bottom here. His name is Julio. Um, he was one of eight children. He and two of his siblings passed through Casa Hogar, um, an incredible advocate for the Lamb Institute. Um, his mother was a teen mother and was one of 17 kids herself. And so, you know, I think something I've learned is that a lot of these parents are not monsters themselves. They're just children as well. And so they just cannot care for their kids. Um, and so Julio is just an incredible advocate for the Lamb Institute. He's now an architect who also has a passion for film, and he um, does a lot for the Institute. Next slide. So uh, the ministry is not just in the mountains, and that's to me, is such a huge blessing to see. Um, Susie, at one point, uh, really pushed to start a ministry in a neighborhood of, uh, outside of Tegucigalpa, the inner city, Tegucigalpa, that's known um, for a lot of danger. Tourists don't go there, a lot of gang activity. And she was like, this is the place. And so she had started a place called Instituto El Cordero. Cordero uh, means lamb. Um, and this is a kind of a multi-purpose space. On the bottom floor, you'll see that second photo um, is a free daycare for single women in that neighborhood. Um, sorry, single mothers in that neighborhood um, who cannot work uh, because of their children and who need to work. And so uh, there are, there's always a wait list for this, but they're doing their very best to provide free daycare that is also comprehensive, um, feeding these kids, giving them spiritual formation, getting them ready for, for school um, while their mothers can work and, and feel, know, knowing that their kids are safe. Um, that's the bottom floor with also uh, a school. Um, and then kind of as you move up, there are different spaces for different programming. Um, on the bottom left, you'll just see uh, kids participating in their school program. Um, and on the right, it's a little bit hard to see, uh, but we have Father John 
getting into some soccer action with the kids. Um, but basically, this kind of represents a, an amazing program they have called Youth in Action, which is just um, making sure kids have a place to go to after school so they're not recruited by gangs. Um, oftentimes, gang members will stand outside of the gates of school to recruit kids, um, especially boys. And so um, there's lots of soccer programs. There are um, other artistic programs to help kids have something to do and to grow as a community and to see a future um, beyond beyond gangs. And so um, I'll end with this. Uh, this is a very um, vulnerable space. And I asked, you know, Susie, how is it that gangs don't extort, extort money from Instituto El Cordero? They've never been um, threatened. And she told me, she's like, well, if I was more spiritual, I would say that God protected us. But I don't want to say that because it doesn't mean that God's not protecting others that get threatened. And she thinks really that gangs are seeing all the good that she's doing and that in their mind, they're also trying to care for their community. And, she's, and they see that's the work that she's doing and, and leave her alone. And so her work is so powerful. Um, and the fact that she stands back at this point and is more of a support and lets over 100 Hondurans be fully employed um, and have a future themselves and do this work um, uh, you know, for the Lord is absolutely amazing. So. I hope that um, you feel inspired by the work that we're doing and we're excited to kind of in the coming months pray about how to continue to support um, Lamb Institute. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. We have been, during the summer, following the lectionary. So the lectionary is a series of readings that churches around the world follow. And for the summer, we've been following the lectionary through the Old Testament. And today we get to talk about a shepherd turned missionary prophet named Amos. I wanted to start off, one, by just letting Olivia talk about this ministry of mercy and love and justice. I'm not going to talk a lot about uh, my experience through the sermon, but really everything in the sermon will be connected to what's going on down there. But I wanted to start off with something that I think I'm going to say that you're already going to agree with. You already will say, yes, I know that, but I'm wondering if you know it down in your bones, as our friends on the West Side say. Is that a Southern thing, or is that just like a churchy thing to say? I like it. It's something that's just we need to know this down in our bones. And that thing that you need to know down in your bones is that you are worthy of love. You're worthy of love and you're precious to God and God loves you. In fact, there's nothing you can do to increase your worth because you are of infinite worth. This is one of those things that we often assume and so we think we don't have to say it, we don't have to repeat it because we assume just everyone knows it. But this idea is literally the foundation of this passage, of this book, of this prophet Amos we're going to read. It's actually the foundation for understanding all of scripture. It becomes the foundation and the impetus for justice. Because if Ryan is loved and precious and infinitely valuable, 
That means then if Preston does something that dehumanizes Ryan, that hurts him in any way, that becomes an injustice, right? Because it violates God's plans for Ryan. And so God in the Old Testament gives what's called the Torah, the instruction. It's God's good and beautiful plan for us. And he gives this command that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And he doesn't just say it. He goes on and spells out all kinds of ways that this is going to work itself out. I mean, there's a lot of laws and a lot of rules. God wanted to structure society built around this love. And thus, the second thing I want to remind you is that the God of Israel is then, for this very reason, a God that requires justice. There's a lot of ways that this gets spelled out, but one major way that we see over and over again through the scriptures is justice simply defined as fairness and compassion towards the poor and the vulnerable, those who have less power in the system. Again, we could sum this up as love your neighbor as yourself. We belong to each other. Mother Teresa once said, the biggest problem with the world is that we have simply forgotten that we belong to each other. And one of my goals for us here at Trinity Northside is that we begin to, to learn and to lean more and more to this idea that we belong to each other. And it turns out that Israel had forgotten this. They were supposed to know, but they had forgotten that they belong to each other. And so we have this image of a plumb line. Have you guys ever worked with plumb just means is it level or is it not? I helped my dad working around the house a lot, fixing things, and he would sometimes take a string with like a little lever on it, and you could see if something was level or not. And the image here in the prophet Amos is that of a wall. And God says, hey, I set a plumb line in Israel. And it turns out that the wall is leaning. The wall isn't straight. And unfortunately, the wall is going to have to come down. Never again will I pass them by. I'm not going to look this over anymore. The high places, so if you don't know in the scriptures, high places just mean places of worship where people would go up to a mountain to worship. The high places of, of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, that is the king of Israel, with a sword. If you don't know, at this point, Israel is split into two kingdoms. And so there's this southern kingdom we just call Judah, and then the northern kingdom we call Israel. And so there's this guy named Jeroboam who is the king of the northern kingdom, and Jeroboam has actually done really well. He has had some military success and expanded the country a little bit. And then he's had a lot of economic success. And so for most of the people there, they actually are feeling really good about this guy, Jeroboam, or at least the powerful people. The people that benefit from what Jeroboam's doing, they're really happy about it. Unfortunately, it's being done at the, at the expense of the poor. And that's why God called Amos from Judah. So he's a missionary. He's not from the northern tribes. It's not his homeland. He called Amos from his homeland and said, hey, we need you to go up north 
to announce these things to the king. Of course, the king has his own preachers. He's got his own people that say what he wants to hear. And the religious capital of the north is Bethel. And there is this uh, priest of Bethel named Amaziah. So Amaziah goes to Jeroboam the king and it says, hey, this guy Amos is conspiring against you. He's saying all these bad things about you and the land can't even bear to hear his words there so much. He's saying things like this. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from its land. We don't get a response from the king, but, but the next thing we know is Amaziah is going to Amos and telling him to get out of here. He says, okay, seer, you like to see stuff. Go flee away to your own, own land of Judah. We have our own prophets here. We don't need people like you coming here from down there and telling us what we need to do. Go earn your bread in your own home country and prophesy there, but never again prophesy in Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and a temple of our kingdom not yours. And then Amos, in true prophetic fashion, has to tell Amaziah like it is. He says, look, I'm not a seer. I'm not a prophet. This isn't the thing that like, I'm trying to do and be in life. I'm a herdsman. I dress these sycamore trees and I tend sheep. I'm good at those three things. That's what I like doing. I wasn't trying to come up here. It turns out that Yahweh, the God of Israel, told me to go and prophesy to my people and say this, now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. So they're already reluctant to all of the prophets that God has sent them and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, says the Lord, and then these are words of judgment, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And this is the catch. This is the thing they had never heard before. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Friends, this is the end. The very end of Israel. And so we might ask, why such harsh words? Why would God say this to his very own people? With that, I want to just share a little bit with you about the message of Amos and what he came on the scene saying. The book actually starts off with Amos pronouncing a kind of a short little summarized judgment on all of Israel's neighbors. God's not picking on Israel. He actually has judgment because of the things they've been doing. And a lot of the things they've been doing, they have been, in a sense, mistreating and misusing uh, their neighboring countries. And as we're gonna see, once he gets to Israel, the judgment actually opens up, the accusations open up, and it turns out the kind of things that they've been doing to their enemies, Israel is actually doing to their own people. This is what it says in the second chapter of Amos. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. 
They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with, fi- with fines they imposed. Here we see four crimes that Israel is accused of. One is selling the, the poor into slavery. Basically, there was a law provision that if a poor person had got into debt and gone so far into debt, they could then sell themselves and become someone else's slave. And they were making um, unfair use of this provision. Can you imagine a society that turns the poor into debtors so that they become slaves? They pervert the justice of the oppressed. And so when the oppressed come in the court, there's no way that they're going to get a fair trial because the rich and the powerful are always on top. And then three, engaging in illicit and exploitative sexual intercourse. Father and son going into the same woman. Obviously, he's describing acts that are not consensual. These are people with power that are abusing and taking advantage of those without power. And four, taking financial advantage of the unfortunate. There's a law in the Bible that says, don't take someone's cloak and pledge overnight. In other words, if you loan something to them, they're going to give you kind of as a deposit their cloak. Don't keep it overnight. They're actually going to need that to cover themselves with, to stay warm. And so what the text says, you've been laying all around your shrine, so all around your, your religious, you know, right next to the church that you built, that you love so much. You're laying around with the cloaks that you stole off the backs of the poor. In summary, the powerful are abusing their power and their privilege. And so Amos goes on, speaking the word of the Lord to them straight from the mouth of the Lord. He says, didn't I destroy the Amorite nation in front of you? So there was this unjust nation of people that could just be summarized as Amorites that were living there. And what God is saying, hey, before you came, didn't I totally like uproot this tree called the Amorites that was living there and place you in there? Don't you know that the same thing's going to happen to you? But then it gets worse. It goes on to say, hey, I sent you all these prophets, and you failed to listen to them. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. So I will press you down in your place, just as the cart presses down when it is full of sheaves. In summary, Israel must go into exile away from its land. And in chapter 8, these words I think are so fitting. The end has come upon my people, Israel. Notice this is God pronouncing against his own people. Can you hear the sadness in his voice? This is the end, and it's the just thing to do, and it has to happen but he's still referring to them as my people, Israel. So what's a God to do? What's a God who is completely just and requires justice, but also at the same time completely committed to his people? What is such a God to do? Well, it turns out that Christians believe 
that the same God who gave the good instruction, the Torah, is the same God who sent the prophets to rebuke God's people for not living according to his good and beautiful ways, is also the same God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. You see, friends, Jesus is the God of justice incarnate. He came to be the faithful Israel that we failed to be. I'll just give a few snippets of his life to illustrate. Hopefully you're familiar. In his opening sermon in the Gospel of Luke, he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus refused to use his power to exploit anyone. In fact, he lived among us as one who is poor. Once he said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived as a homeless person without privilege. Instead of exploiting women, instead of failing to see their humanity, their value and dignity, he saw them for who they really were and he helped them to see who they could be. I'm thinking of episodes like a woman caught in adultery, surrounded by sinners that are ready to stone her, possibly the very same men with whom she had committed adultery, and Jesus sees her. I'm thinking about the Samaritan woman at the well who had been abused and used in many different relationships, and Jesus saw her and recognized her as a person that was thirsty for living water. I'm thinking about Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by demons, later weeping at his tomb, seen by Jesus, heard by Jesus, sent by Jesus. She becomes the apostle to the apostles. Finally, and most fully, Jesus enters fully into the plight of the oppressed poor on the cross, dying unjustly at the hand of the rich and powerful rulers and political elites of his day. Notice it is an actual religious leader that Amaziah, that is, comes and tells um, Amos, hey, don't prophesy all that justice stuff around here, okay? We don't need that. And it's the same Thing It's also religious leaders in Israel that are going to reject Jesus' message and his good news for the poor. Friends, I want to remind you that it was for us. Jesus' death was sacrificial. The scriptures tell us that he died for the sins of his people. Going backwards and going forwards, his life was paid as a ransom for our unjust lives. And this has many important implications, but for us in our work of, of justice, I want you to hear this. As Christians, our work of justice is never fueled by guilt because Jesus has already taken all of our guilt and all of our shame on the cross. 
He's actually already paid for the price of us and our failure to live as just in the world and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have no guilt because we've already been forgiven. That means that as Christians, our work for justice is fueled by forgiveness. It's the one who forgives us that calls us to follow after him. And it's because of grace that we can boldly admit to all of the world that we've been on the wrong side of history. It's because of this forgiveness, it's because of the gospel that we can at the same time admit we've been on the wrong side of history and simultaneously acknowledge that God's grace has actually qualified us to, to participate in his ministry of mercy and justice. So what's the call for us this morning? One, I wanna invite you to turn to Jesus and let him be the center of it all. Turn to Jesus and let him be the center of it all. Many of our politically liberal or politically conservative friends, they actually seem to agree on this one thing, many of them at least. They seem to agree that social justice is somehow about embracing some new 20th century or 21st century ways of thinking. Many conservatives want to criticize liberals for being too progressive and, and come out somehow breaking with wholesome tradition, chasing after novel ideas about how to be human. And then many of our liberal friends imagine that they, in fact, are the future and that conservatives need to abandon tradition and embrace the inevitable. And what I would like to suggest this morning is something different. <laughs> that even while walking in humility and love towards our brothers and sisters, we can simply acknowledge that we follow Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and who actually embodied the kind of justice that the God of Israel was expecting from his people in the Bronze Age. Think about that. Our radical love for the poor, our care and solidarity with those who are at the margins is not rooted in any novel, modern, 21st century concept. It's rooted in the good and beautiful ways of the God of Israel that was revealed most clearly in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. My issue with uh, a lot of the many good conservative folk is not that they are too traditional. It's that they are not traditional enough. Often they have failed to recognize the ancient tradition a social justice that is demanded of God's people throughout the scriptures. And I would say similarly, my issue with many of the good liberal folk is that they fail to recognize that justice can also be found in the tradition. When Martin Luther King Jr. gets up to speak and to inspire the oppressed African-American population and become the conscience of a white population 
he was appealing to the tradition of scripture. In fact, he is quoting Amos 5. When God says to the people, I actually hate your religious services. I hate the church services you're doing. I hate the sacrifices you're offering. I hate the holidays. Like, let's forget about Pentecost and Christmas and all that stuff. And let's just let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Martin Luther King Jr. quotes Amos 5, 2. He is reminding the people of Memphis, both black and white, that the God who required justice in Israel is also looking for justice in the American South. Of course, it's true. Fake, colonized, American, Enlightenment-style, syncretized Christianity is indeed oppressive and a tool of, of power that is exercised against the marginalized here and everywhere in the globe. However, friends, the good news is that the real Christian faith, the most traditional version, the God revealed in the Torah, the God revealed through the prophets, and most clearly in Jesus, is the God who brings good news to the poor and freedom for the captives. The first thing we have to do is make it all about Jesus and put him into the center and learn from him. The second thing I want us to do is to remember that we belong to each other. Friends, this work starts here. The work starts here. I remember we were in LA. There was a family that got in trouble. Husband was incarcerated. My wife, Jana, was preaching that day, and she just called the family up. She just called them up and just said, this is our family. We're going to get behind them. We're going to cook meals. We're going to do everything we can to support. While their husband picked up by ice, we're going to do everything we can to care for this family. And she just kind of mama bared it to them and just told them. But really what she was appealing to is this gospel concept that we belong to each other. And it's gotta, meet, it's gotta be real. It's gotta be a thick sense. It can't just be like a high, like I wave hi to you on Sunday. And if you're new here, I just invite you to come check it out for a couple of Sundays, you know, be around, feel it out, think of this for you. But I just want you to know up front, we're calling people here into a serious relationship, not only with God, but with each other. We belong to each other. Of course, the idea extends to the whole world. So that in the way that as I learned to support Daryl and Daryl learned to support me, when we're out in the street, we see other people, we begin to realize that same sense of belonging starts here. One, I want us to recognize we belong to each other. Three, I want us to be forgiven, spirit-filled agents of justice in our city. So the belonging that starts here has to go out. Again, forgiven. We're not doing this out of guilt. I'm not trying to white guilt anybody in here as if that's gonna bring life to you or bring life to anyone out there. You're forgiven people. God loves you. He knows abuse people, abuse others. He knows, he knows we're born into a system that is unholy, but we're also forgiven. And we're given the spirit. And the spirit lives in us to go out and live the kind of life 
that Jesus lived. Finally, it's a question. It starts here, it goes out, but really it starts here in me. One question that we want to leave you with is this. Does my life embody the gospel? Good news for the poor. Does your life embody the gospel? The way you're living, is it good news to those around you, especially to those on the margins? Let's take a minute, a moment of silence as we reflect on what the Spirit would be saying to us in this time.